Welcome to Love Canberra, a show about love, sex, and relationships here in the heart of the nation. I'm Ivana Ho. Last year, I had the pleasure of being with my guest on a very auspicious occasion. Today is your birthday. How has your day been? What have you been up to today? Well, I announced on Facebook that uh, due to my advanced state of decay, it gives me an an out for not being able to do algebra. (laughs) Did that work? No, but I'm using it as an excuse from now on. Sherry is many wonderful things. She's also a mature age student. When I spoke to her, she was completing a university pathways program covering numeracy, literacy and research. Her plan was to go on to do a diploma of liberal studies and then a bachelor of arts. Sherry displayed a very level-headed approach to her studies. So you were telling me before that the algebra was in relation to an exam that you took? Yes, Okay. today, and I didn't do well. Mm-hmm. I have no marks yet, but I know I didn't didn't go well, so no, mm. these things happen, and you can only do your best. And if your best isn't quite good enough for that level, that's fine too. Before we got down to brass tacks, I checked that Sherry had everything she needed for the hour to follow. And do you think you'll need water at any point or anything like that? No, I should be okay. fine. Okay. Do you have a drink bottle in case? Yeah, you... but it's empty because I emptied it before I came. Oh, okay. Um, I used to carry um, like a two-liter bottle of water in my car, like just in case I broke down or yep. something, and you know, didn't want to go thirsty. <laughs> my husband always used to use um, bottle uh, soft drink bottles, and he'd have that because you could use it for the screen if it, uh, it uh, icing. If we were out at night and mm. it iced, he'd have bottled water in the car to just. But we don't go out much at night anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not not late enough for that sort of thing. Yeah. We're not we're not out to two and three o'clock in the morning like we used to. <laughs> we got old and tired. Sherry and her husband Glenn have been together for more than half their lives, and there was between them precisely three degrees of separation. Glenn was friends with the boyfriend of a friend of Sherry's cousin. At the time, Glenn and Sherry were both 22. There's 25 days difference in our ages. Mm. He's 25 days older. So so for 25 days, I tell him that he's um, cradle snatching or I'm his child bride or all sorts of things. (laughs) And um, was it like love at first sight or attraction at first sight? Attraction at first sight. He was pretty cute. Mm -hmm. And it was the 80s, so, you know, tight jeans and pastel jumpers. And you said something about a triangular shape. Oh, yes. So the wide shoulders and the, the narrow hips. So he's very cute. Mm. And uh, blonde and blue-eyed and, yeah, just a cliche. <laughs> and you were pretty striking yourself. Yeah, I had my moments. <laughs> Wild, crazy hair and long and skinny and, you know. It was the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely was the 80s. <laughs> 
so you made a reference to something about like your wild days or something what was was oh we just used to go out a lot we met um our stamping ground was the rocks in sydney Sydney's different from Canberra, so you, you it's places, whereas Canberra is people. So you, you make friends when you're out. So you go, say, to the Observer Hotel in the Rocks and then everybody will meet there and then you'll just meet more and more people. And that's where I met him at the Observer Hotel at the Rocks because he'd come with a group of friends and I was there with a group of friends and some of those two groups, there was a Venn diagram where it overlapped, that they knew each other, and that's how we met. Okay. So you met and then you just like clicked and you started dating and yeah he was uh, I was still going out with somebody else when I first met him and he was always the one to offer to drive myself or my cousin home so he would always drive us home and no strings attached you just like to talk and in the car and everything and eventually we just started getting we got it together and we started dating and we've been together since then when they met Sherry already had a daughter She'd had her at 18, she explained, after a round of penicillin interfered with her oral contraception. Her daughter was very much a consideration and a determinant in Sherry's romantic life. One of the, the deals we had with my, well, my husband and I when we started dating is that we weren't going to get serious until they met and they, whether they got on or anything else. So, mm. so that was part of our sort of contract in a way, that mm. they had to be you know, get on okay. But of course, you know, it, it's those days, so you, it's, a, it's a strange guy in the life of your child because I'd had other boyfriends that didn't necessarily meet my child because they were never going to be relationships. They were just fun. Mm-hmm. Were you ever concerned about how having a child might affect your dating life? I mean, it's a terrible to think, thing to think about, really, because, you know... Like... No, I was more concerned that I was going to go and, and look at guys and go, nah, I wouldn't have you anywhere near my child. Yeah, well, that's definitely... That was a good litmus test. You sort yeah. of look at them and go, yeah, you're really cute, but nah, mm-hmm. I don't want you near my kid. Mm. Okay, and Glenn passed the test. Yes, and he actually had said that he didn't also want him until he worked out whether they got on okay and they could sort of build a relationship. So... And they did. She was four when we met, so um, so they got on really well. But it was like having two kids in the house at times because they'd be, he's, he's on my side of the lounge, she's on my side. And they'd just be like little squabbling two-year-olds, the two of them. <laughs> and you had to be the grown-up. Yes. Mm. So having a child at 18 who was unexpected, unplanned, were you prepared to become a parent? Like how, how did you meet this challenge? Uh, it was an interesting one because I had the choice because I found out I was pregnant fairly quickly because I stopped having a period. So I found out I was pregnant very, very quickly because I was very regular and went, oh, look, I think I'm pregnant and then had to make the decision whether I was going to abort, continue with the pregnancy. And I decided that there was no rational reason to abort. I don't have anything against abortion. But in my case, I just thought that, well, I was healthy. There had been some infertility problems in my family. So there was a good chance that this may or may not be my only chance to have a child. Um, so it was like, yeah, because if I had aborted and then found I couldn't fall pregnant, it would be really terrible. So mm. so my mother had one, two, three, four, four children. Yes, four children and 16 pregnancies because she kept losing so, and one of my other sisters 
um, was told that she would never fall pregnant and it was just this whole thing that we have this this history of infertility so you always there's a risk there if you don't when you're lucky enough to fall pregnant and there's nothing really standing in your way you may as well do it mm. and I was also in a very very fortunate position that my grandparents thought it was wonderful not wonderful that I fell pregnant but wonderful they absolutely adored so that they would look after her every second weekend. So I'd drop her off um, at, on Friday night and we'd pick her up on Saturday, Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. So every second weekend, was there was no child. It was just could do what you wanted to, party all night, whatever. <laughs> Which, do, I mean, a lot of people don't have that. So that makes a – so there wasn't that horrible thing of, oh, my life's – slipped away from me because I've spent all my life or my young my youth looking after a child I had every second weekend to be the 18 19 20 year old that Mm -hmm. I needed to be Mm. yeah that would have been so important yeah it was it was fantastic I was so lucky Mm. I think you mentioned that your daughter was about four when she met Glenn yes yes okay and then you later decided to have a child with Glenn yes okay but there's 10 years between the two my daughter and my son so um, which works quite well because you sort of almost have a built-in baby. Well, you have a second pair of hands so that, you know, um, that that's, can be really handy because they're old enough to run around and get you things and help out and everything else. Mm-hmm. And she was very proud of her little brother, so. In terms of um, when your son was born and when he was growing up and all that, what did your life look like at that stage? Um, you were a stay-at-home mother? For the first eight years. Yeah, I stayed yeah. home for each of the children until they were eight and then I went to work. It was a normal life. But again, it was more I would wrestle with my son rather than my husband just because that's probably the way it was. So you were the mother who wrestled with her son and you were the cool mother who... Well, I was a liquor manager for quite a few years mm-hmm. and so I had a lot of... I was quite... Um, had really strong arms from lugging cases of beer and all that sort of stuff. So when my son was 15 and 16, his idea of fun was to tell his friends to challenge me to an arm wrestle. <laughs> and he'd be so impressed because his mother would beat his friends. <laughs> So I was sort of uh, more physically active in those, as in fitter and stronger and everything else because, as I said, lugging cases of beer and wine and everything in and out of the shop all the time mm. does bu- tend to build up some muscles. And you'd ride your motorcycle yes. to the liquor store yes. when you worked? Yes. Right? <laughs> yes, I did. Well, motor scooter in those days. Because I had a motorbike in Sydney and then a, motor, uh, then a scooter in Canberra. So... Um, but and I walk a lot so that's my big thing these days I just walk I don't drive I don't like cars very much we have a car and my husband drives that and I just catch buses or walk so were you in Canberra by the time you were working at the liquor store yes yeah we my son was born here so we came here when my daughter was eight so my father was really ill so we came down to came to Canberra to help look after him and stuff Another crazy, let's completely stuff up our lives and move from the inner city of Sydney, Newtown and Erskineville and come to the suburbs of Canberra. Where there was nothing. No, I remember being so utterly shocked because we were living at Rivette and Chapman shops were the closest and the pizza place closed at 6 o'clock on a Saturday night. (laughs) 
absolutely horrified. Coming from Newtown and Erskineville where you've got just everything all the time. It was such a culture shock. But we got used to it. Some years before they moved to Canberra, when they were in the prime of their lives and at their peak health and attractiveness, Sherry and Glenn had what would become a fateful conversation. Well, after we'd been together for a couple of years, we'd, I think we were about 24, and I looked at him one day and said, do you realise we're never going to, this is it, it's all down here from now. <laughs> we're going to get old, tired. And that's fine. I mean, we came to terms with that. Like, it wasn't a big, oh, deep and meaningful discussion. It was an, an offhand sort of remark, but it was true. And um, I guess some people always expect that the person, or expect that the person that they're with is always going to look like they're going to look and if as you age you can't be struggling to try and maintain looking like you looked at 22 when you're 52 or 62 or whatever because it's not going to happen we all change and sometimes it's a good thing sometimes not so much and he shared your view on that yeah he was fine Mm. I don't think he thought we were ever going to get old I just think he thought we were always just going to be like we were life took its course sooner than either of them expected. I'd always been the sort of one that wasn't quite as well. There were bits and pieces, but I was a little bit of arthritis. I've had arthritis since I was 15. I had to take anti-inflammatories. And then because I had been taking anti-inflammatories since I was 15, I got what they thought, what they treat like they treat ulcers because I got little stomach, um, little holes in the stomach lining. So I had to take ulcer medication at the same time and, and sort of, yeah. He was always the healthy one out fishing and playing golf and doing all that sort of thing, whereas I'm sort of much more lazy and laid back. And he started getting trouble with his eyes and always had a bit of a funny tummy, but we never really worried about it. And then... He went to the ophthalmologist and the ophthalmologist said, I think you should go for a test. I think that your iritis, which he was getting quite often, which is a sort of an inflammation of the eyes, um, I think that that's an indicator of something else. I think you should go and get tested. And it turned out he had this thing called LAB27, which is a pointer to Crohn's disease. The iritis was one of the symptoms that that was going to happen and then he got Crohn's. <laughs> How old was he when he got well, diagnosed? Well th- he was in his early 30s mid 30s something like that but it wasn't a big thing it was just oh he has Crohn's you know okay we can deal with that and then he started getting really sick and he started not being able to eat and I used to cook all the meals and then he would say don't cook anything until I get home and then I'll decide whether or not I want to eat and then it was don't cook anything. If I want something, I'll make it. And that's how it became because I would be cooking for myself and for whichever child was there and, you know, and then he just wouldn't want to eat it because he couldn't face it because he felt nauseous and he didn't feel well and he'd be bloated and time goes on and he ended up having to have a bowel bowel resection. So they took a piece of his intestine and a piece of his bowel out and then rejoined it because it was so ulcerated, which then creates a sort of like a corner where the food goes in and then it gets stuck there and it can't go out. And then um, it develops ulcers and they can't fix that. They have to actually 
cut that section out and then sew it all back together again. This is after a multitude of tests and everything. So we had that. He was amazing. He got so well quickly after that. He was absolutely full of life, put on so much weight. He was the heavy, like he was actually quite chubby, heaviest he's ever been in his life. And that was sort of like a remission thing. And he was unbelievable. Like he was just eating, we had our life back, everything was wonderful. And then he got sick again. And then he had to have another bowel resection. And that other bowel resection, among other problems, is one, you know, the shorter the bowel is, the worse it is. But also they had forgotten to tell him or give him antibiotics at the hospital, which he should have had because, of course, they're dealing with it. And when he went for his post-op checkup, they then realised that he had not had the antibiotics for that time. And he had, in the meantime, developed uh, irritable bowel syndrome as well. So what he could eat was had become so limited. And then when he did eat, he got really sick. And he gets a temperature and he... Just can't, he can go days with barely eating anything. Um, we keep ice blocks in the house because he can live on those for a few days if he's not. But one of the funny things was he lost so much weight that they decided that they were going to give him one of those formula tins. I can't remember what it's called, but they they were a, a premix liquid thing that they give to people invalids and stuff like that. So they they gave him that incentive incentive something like that. So they gave him that. We bought all this. Is it insurance? That's it, yes. So we bought lots of that. It's really expensive. We bought heaps, bought it online because we could buy in bulk because he was going to have to be on that. And then we found out because they had not, because of the, the Crohn's was fine, that stuff, but because of the IBS that had happened, he couldn't have it. (laughs) So it was making him worse, not better. So we had to get rid of that. So he's been quite unwell for probably a long time now. Well, what what seems like a long time. He used to go bad days, then a whole bunch of good days, then some bad days, then some good days. And now we can go months where he's just really bad for you know several months. Then he'll have maybe a week, three weeks, four weeks, brilliant. And then he might go another two weeks bad. But you just, you can't make plans. You you find that you lose connection with your friends because you can't do, you can't make plans to say, oh, we'll go out on Friday because you don't know what he's going to be like on Friday. So, which sort of cramps your style a bit and people don't want to be doing things just to, that you end up saying, oh, no, we can't come because Glenn's not well. So as he was going through this in the very beginning, did you did the two of you anticipate that there would be these good periods and bad periods or, or was it just, you know, something that ended up happening? Like when he, um, after his first bowel resection did you think that that would be the solution or yes okay we did we thought that that was pretty much going to be and maybe some things could happen later on you know way down the tr- way way because don't forget we were only in our 30s so you know way 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 down the track our son was born when we were 28 so he was only little and he's never really had the thing of being able to wrestle with his dad or anything else because it can be quite sensitive but no this was was, was always a temporary hiccup in our life you know it was going to get better and then we and because we've heard about people and we found out later that his great his aunt in in england had it but she had such a mild that she never really had any problem there was some things she couldn't eat and that was about it so we really thought genetically that's that's what he's going to be like you know he'll get over this 
and that's what our life will be. And there'll be some, it'll be just some food oddities that he can't have. Not a problem. No, it didn't end up being like that. He um, has lost jobs because he's not been well enough to, to be able to, to go to work. He's on disability now, but he can't even go in the car. We can't travel because he can't um, handle the motion for very long. And he's better if he drives because he has more control. But he, you know, I think the last time we've travelled any distance was when we went to Sydney for his mother's funeral and we had to do it so that we went the day before the funeral so he could, we'd go down, he could then rest, do the funeral and then stay again so he could rest and then go the next day. So, you know, what should have been a one-night thing ended up being like three nights or something. Um, And we also broke the journey in lots of ways. He just can't. He, he can't go by bus, he can't go by plane, he can't go by anything. Like it just, train, nothing. You just get sick, nauseous. If he's in a passenger, he gets nauseous. So, But when he drives, he's got a bit more control and, and that seems to help. And because I think because he's focused, much more focused too when he's driving. So it's not as stressful for him as in he's not more as, as aware of his body. You mentioned to me before that the two of you lead somewhat parallel lives these days. Yes. So when he got really sick, I moved out of our room so that, and I went to spare him because he's so sensitive. If you touched him, if I touched him while he was like I was asleep and I touched his belly or something, it would have really hurt because of all the. So I went, all right. So I moved into the spare room and created that as being my space. It was already my office. And And when was that? I did it, well, I've done it several times. So I did it the first time when he had his first stop and then... Which is like almost uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, probably. Okay. Yeah, it would be. So I did that and, and we've always done that when somebody's been sick. You you know, um, when I broke my elbow, we were sleeping in the same bed again, but we um, put bolsters down the centre so that um, he couldn't touch because I had um, broken my arm in four places so that he couldn't touch it with him sleeping. So we had all that. And then when I had when I had my gallbladder removed, again, we did the bolster thing um, down the centre of the bed, so you know, like the border. And then we went, ah. Jericho's wall or something? Yeah, something <laughs> like that. So well, then we talked about getting two single beds in the same room. And then because he used to snore, it was like, oh, I may as well just have my own room. And then I'll go back. And I used to go back into our, our bed and then go into my, whenever somebody was sick or whatever. Even if we had separate beds, separate rooms, he'd come and visit me at night or you know, afternoon or whatever. And I'd go visit him. And that was great. And then it became a thing that it was sort of things like head jobs and stuff because then he, couldn't, he wouldn't be touched because he had to be so sensitive because it it's ulcerated so and then it just it's you know well since you brought up sex yep there is none okay um so (laughs) you had mentioned to me before that the two of you had tended to operate on like a feast and famine kind of a cycle yes exactly we've always been that way where we would be all over each other like a rash could not take a hand and that would go on for a few weeks and then we'd just ease off and then might not touch it, like have sex for a week or two and then we'd be back into the, the feast and then it would be a famine and, then, and that's what it's always been. 
Uh, it's and things would come up, of course, to inspire the famines. Yeah, because, you know, kids and work and life and maybe a fight or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I had a, a grandmother I used to go down and look after occasionally in, in Sydney because she had have operations and different things. Things get in the way. So we were still, even after he was sick, the first after the first operation, we were still having sex. Everything was fine. You know, there was a, had to be a bit more careful, but that was fine. But then when he put on all his weight and he got really well, it was like normal again. There was no, you know, it was fine. And then he got sick again and we tried, but he lost interest. That's, it's a weird sort of situation. He became so frightened that it was going to hurt him that it took away desire to a certain degree because he's so wrapped up with his body. It is what encompasses his entire life. It's what can, everything, it, it defines our lives anyway, his illness, but it it does take up his entire attention. Uh, I used to get a bit annoyed because you could hear him taking his temperature all the time and, you know, because he doesn't have a lot in his life anymore. He doesn't fish anymore. He gets too tired. He doesn't play golf anymore because he just can't walk that far. We, for a long time there, until the last couple of years, and we're hoping that he'll get a, a another boost, we would go for a walk. We, we live in... in um, southern canberra so we would go for a walk around the lake and it was lovely and we do that you know heaps and then because he was doing really well and then he'd go down for a few months and then he'd get up again and everything would be good and we'd start doing slowly start doing these walks and he was walking way more than i was even he was like even when i was at work he would go for a walk and it was amazing and then he got sick again and then it all and we haven't walked since a long time like a couple of years now because he just hasn't had the energy or and of course he wouldn't do it in winter and that's disappointing because that would be our bonding time we would walk for you know an hour or two and just talk continually the entire walk just now if he's well enough we'll go to lunch and we'll just sit there and catch up with each other and talk and do all that sort of stuff and that's our bonding time um i never knew that we'd stopped having sex until I suddenly realised we hadn't we hadn't had sex for ages, and I was like, oh, so you know, um, and that happens. I guess it's not what I expected to happen. I must admit, it definitely wasn't in my plan. So, how have you felt about the loss of sex? Essentially, it's a lack, but it's not a deal breaker. And I will give him a tweak every now and again, and sort of say, oi. Even you'll say, what do you want for your birthday? And I'll go, sex life. Because <laughs> I'm a bitch and, you know. Mm-hmm. And he, but he, no, he, like, it, he doesn't take it. He, he's not offended or anything else. And, you know, he'll just, and I said to him, like, if you're not going to give me sex, you've got to give me cuddles because that's it. Like, you, I can't not have both. So he will come, but he'll cuddle from behind because then it's, and he can move his belly away from my body so it's not, it's not touching them. He'll have his shoulders and arms and all the rest of head and that. But he'll curve his body out so that it can't touch that part because it is so sensitive. Like he has days where he has to wear pants really low because he can't ha- handle the feel of the material on his belly. It's so, so sensitive. So you can understand why the idea of sex can be a little bit frightening and terrifying for him. Mm. So, yeah. In terms of that kind of physical affection and the cuddling and so forth 
is he doing it for himself as well? Do you think that he also gets continues to get pleasure from that? I think so. He likes the bonding. He's always been the sort of person that's always said, oh, he didn't need friends as long as he had me and that was all he ever needed, like, because he's never been the most social. My friends have been our friends, although he has made, you know, has some friends, but it's always been, he, he would be quite happy, he used to say he'd be quite happy if we didn't have to socialise because I was the social butterfly of the family and I was the one who made, and he used to use me as an excuse if he didn't want to go somewhere and he'd say our boss would ask him, oh, you know, come to, you know, come and have dinner or whatever. And he'd go, oh, I have to check with Sherry. You know, and then he'd go, we don't have to go, do we? And I'm going, What's you know, and then he'd go, oh, no, Sherry says we're busy. <laughs> so does he ever initiate those cuddles from the Oh, place? yeah. And he, he, he'll always come and, um, you know, like he'll tell me he loves me and he'll hold my hand and not as much as I'd like, but then again, you know, I'm busy too and, and, and so he was doing not too terrible, but then he got a cold. And now that doesn't sound like much, but because he has no real immune system, his temperature goes through the roof. He has to, even though it's a cold, he eventually has to go onto antibiotics to stop the fever. Um, and that knocks him about. So he's been fighting a cold for a month. He just got over that. And then the Crohn started playing up. So basically at the moment we're on sort of like a six-week cycle where there's he's just been miserable. Yeah, he sits in his chair, he drives me batty because he goes to sleep in his chair and then you get in trouble because you disturb him. And I'm thinking, but you're in the lounge room. If you want to be asleep, go in your room. But, of course, you know, he, he likes to have the TV on and he likes to just... We, I bought him an old man's chair, as I call it, uh, a recliner, <laughs> which he loves and he can just get really comfortable in that and just watch his shows. And he actually listens to them, but quite often he'll have his eyes closed, um, which I always say is a, just a, a fake for sleeping, but he says no. Oh, he's listening, he knows what's going on. But it's he can't... Sometimes he doesn't have the energy to open his eyes, but listening to it, he could get something out of it and he'll drift in and out um he's on a lot of painkillers and and the endone i think is one of those things that also diminishes your sex drive it's like all those sort of painkiller type things they all do that too as well so all those things add to the problem well it's not really a problem i say problem but the lack thereof but we've always been a touchy-feely couple you walk past you put a hand on a shoulder and it's always i love you all that sort of thing's always been a big part my daughter used to say you two are really weird because you know you fight and you love each other and that's what I that's what I think every couple's supposed to be and I'm thinking I didn't realize we were like that but and it wasn't like we weren't overly sexual in this touching it was just as you walk past the room you might just put your hand on their shoulder as you as you walk past them while they're sitting down or something it's just we've always done that and we still do um you know, but I'll go and he's sitting in his chair and I'll just go over and kiss him on the top of the head just because I feel like it. <laughs> so, yeah. What has Glenn's relationship been like to his illness? Has he sort of made peace with his illness? Has he wrestled with it at particular times? Has it kind of affected his behaviour and towards you and... Oh, yeah, sometimes. It used to be much worse. Like, now that we're older, it's a lot calmer. But 
he used to get really angry and because he couldn't be he couldn't control his illness he would then try and control me um which of course caused a whole lot of interesting situations um in what way would he oh just silly things It'd be, oh, when, when are you going to be home? And if I was running late or, you know, you'd have to sort of continually say, oh, I'm running late or I'm going to be, and let him know where you were and what was going on and everything else. And he didn't want to do anything. And then sort of it was, he just abrogated all responsibility for everything. So basically the, it was, I had, I was doing everything and then I was getting in trouble because I wasn't doing it right because it's just a little, yeah, it's just silly thing. But it really was this whole thing. He couldn't control his illness because it had, it had control of him. So therefore he was trying to control everything else, which is not him normally. But this was part of his wrestle with his illness and trying to come to terms with it and everything else. Because don't forget, we're talking about a very young man. He was only in his early 30s with a young child, whole life ahead. Suddenly things are not the way you think they're going to be. Um, so he was angry. He was angry at the world. He was angry at his own body. He was angry at me. He was angry. He was just angry, which, you know, I can understand. It wasn't easy to live with, but I can understand it. Um, but could you understand it at the time? No, of course not. I used to get offended all the time. <laughs> I'd go off to my room and cry. I'd go, just go into another room and cry. I'd just be devastated because I didn't understand. And also, my life was so wrapped up with him that, and everything we, we pretty much did so much together. We had had this sort of relationship where it was, it was laughing, the two of us against the world, but we were a unit and we, you know, our life was that. We had lots of, we don't have a lot in common. He loves sport, I don't. He likes reality TV. I don't. Um, I love technology. He doesn't. We don't have the same ideas. I love history, you know, but we both read. But we don't really have anything much in common apart from us as a partnership, which is fine. I mean, when we first started dating, this is how bad it was. When we first started going out and living together. I used to sit there with a tapestry and sit there and stitch while he watched cricket. <laughs> because it was sharing time together and he would talk to me about the game and everything else and I couldn't just sit there. I'd have to be doing something. So I was doing you know, tapestries and cross-stitch and all sorts of things just so I had something of interest so he could just you know, vent about the television or whatever. But that was, you know, it was fine. Um, but now I don't bother. Like, And I can hear him yelling at the TV still. <laughs> My children learned at sort of two or three years old that t yelling at the TV doesn't really work because it's not an animate object it's not going to respond but my husband is 56 years, 57 years old and he still hasn't learned that lesson because he still yells at the television so at what point did you begin to understand that how he was reacting was uh, as a result of him not being able to control all these things i think i came to that realization on my own and then eventually i spoke to him about it but again, it was that matter of finding a moment where he was willing to talk about it. He was, you know, when he was feeling well and then you could discuss discuss what was going on. But you wouldn't ever think to bring it up when he was really bad because that's all he was conscious. And the whole world, everybody's world was meant to revolve around his illness. And then he'd feel guilty because his illness was impacting everybody else. So you have this on the one hand, oh, my illness is the most important thing in our lives. We all have to circle around that but then on the other hand he felt terrible because 
his illness was impacting everybody and it was affecting everybody. Mm. So I don't think that we can understate that, you know, he is the party that is suffering probably oh. the most. Um, but how is it that you coped with all of this? <laughs> I always say that um, the thing is that the, and the one thing that used to drive me batty in the early days was, people, oh, how's Glenn? Poor Glenn. I'm thinking, how the hell do you think I'm feeling? This is not. This is my life that's been impacted as well. But you do. All right, you make you make sort of judgments and and, uh, and decisions and everything else. And I and Glenn and I've talked about this as well. And one of the things was is that I have to have my own life. I have to have my own friends. I have to have a social life. Not that I'm a social butterfly, but I need to go out with my friends and do things and everything else. And if I didn't, if I was sitting at home with him, he wouldn't be entertaining me anyway because he wasn't well, but I would be very resentful because I would be sitting home but not sharing time with him because he wasn't well enough and whatever. So now I just do stuff that I want to do and I have my own set of friends that I do things with and different interests and everything else and now I'm back at uni and... I'm sort of he so he gets to listen to me rant and rave about algebra and <laughs> how much I hate it. Is that something that he would have wanted for you to just be a presence in the house always? It used to be. I think he thought that that was being supportive. You know, he wasn't well enough to go go out. So you know, it was if we were going to go somewhere, he wasn't well. We both wouldn't go, and it's now reached the stage where we even have family events. Um, what was it? we had one not that long ago, and he wasn't well enough, so I just caught the bus in and met everybody in at the restaurant and said, "Oh, Daddy's not feeling well, well enough to do it." So, whereas before he would, yeah, really strive to do it, and he still does, and he'll take an endo. He lines up his endo so that he can take it just this is like the second before we leave, so that it'll last the longest, so that he can um, at least be a part but when he's really sick he just not even that he's going to do it but touch wood we've had a couple of good years we've had no um, emergency um, admissions to hospital or anything he hasn't been in hospital like as in uh, stay for a couple of years which has been really good because I used to have to have my phone at work on the desk on um, vibrate so that and, and I would check it because in case there was a thing saying he'd been rushed to hospital you know and it has happened that you get the phone call or the message saying oh ambulance called just going off <laughs> just going to hospital but that, I'm much more relaxed now because that hasn't happened and I know it's silly because there's always a chance that it could happen but I've had a couple of years now where it hasn't happened and it just I think that's helped me cope much better because I haven't had that uncertainty and being that Vig that hypervigilance with the phone worrying that there was going to be something from that he would get rushed to hospital or something because we got a few in a few years because he had um, he had pneumonia because he has no immune system he got pneumonia he's had you know they he had a thing where they thought his lymph his lymph glands got all done and then they thought that there was he might have had a lymphoma so we had to go through all the tests of that and you know but it hasn't been that, so we've been really lucky. But there's always that thing, and for as I said, for about three years there, it was there was no no you you just be in hospital. So two years, thank God, it's been a lot calmer, and that's kept me that's made me a lot calmer because I'm not on edge, and it's probably made him a lot calmer too because he's not as stressed. Although he still it still crops his mind when he gets sick, he sort of thinks, oh, is this going to be the one where I have to go to hospital? Mm -hmm.
He picked a fight. This is when it was all relatively new after the second resection. So when we realised that it wasn't going to get better and it was just going to get steadily worse and I used to pick on him and say, oh, look, you'll have to have a bag, a colostomy bag, you know. Ah, keep that away from me. I don't want to see that. And um, so as long as I don't see it, we're fine. And that was all right. So everything, we were just joked about that because we really did think that that was, and it is, he hasn't got one, but that that's, you know, you know 40, 50, 60 years in the, in the distance. But anyway, so he'd been really, really ill he picked a fight and I couldn't understand why he was picking this fight and he goes right that's it we're done I'm moving out find my own place that's it it had just come out of the blue and I was like really shocked and I kept pushing at him and pushing at him to find out what was going on because it was it wasn't a proper fight like it wasn't him getting angry there was a real almost a coldness to it and I thought, not, not even cold, but there was, it was wrong. It felt wrong. It wasn't a proper fight. Anyway, so I pushed and pushed and pushed and I burst into hysterics and was bawling my eyes out and I was like, I don't understand what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And over a period of several hours, because I kept being horrific and being at him and then I'd walk off and then I'd come back and still trying to work out what the hell's going on because it just didn't feel right. And his idea was that he realised that he was not going to get better. It was only going to get worse and he was trying to spare me. So if we were separate, it wouldn't be so hard on me. It wasn't fair to me, blah, 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 which was wonderful. But at the time, but when he, I, I mean, it was very altruistic and, and caring and loving and all the rest. Of it, but it wasn't really because, Jesus, I don't care that much about him being sick, as in it still doesn't stop who he is and the fact that I want to spend my life with him and and sounds really romantic and all that sort of rubbish but i and it's not even you know religion or anything else i had decided that he was the man for me and i wanted to spend my life with him and we would rub together somehow you know rubbing together rubbing our rough edges off creating being a couple and that was fine the fact that it got stuffed up because it was he was sick wasn't his fault Okay, you get angry and you get pissed off because it's ruined your plan for your life. Not that it's a mega plan, but it's not what you expect. You expect a life that's pretty normal and you're going to just do the things. And this wasn't in our game plan. It wasn't how we had envisioned our lives together when we were 22. But it's the way it happened. Um, anyway, so long story short... I yelled and screamed at him and told him that he wasn't leaving and he had no right to make decisions for me and what was best for me because I was an adult too and if he can be altruistic, I can be altruistic. And, and eventually we started yelling at each other and it was all fine. <laughs> Which sounds really bizarre but it worked because then the passion came back in and we were actually talking or yelling about choices. And my choice was I would rather put up with his illness and have him in my life than not. And that's what it comes down to. And that was probably about 10 years ago, that giant, giant, giant fight was. And we're still here. Mm -hmm. Struggling, but we're here. The last, I guess 
two and a bit decades haven't exactly been what you might have expected for your lives together. No. Do you feel like the Crohn's has been massively unfair, that it's like robbed you of the best years of your lives together? I don't think we've ever thought of unfairness. We hated the disease with a passion, uh, absolutely hated the whole thing of it. But I don't think we've ever looked at it and go, oh, this is not fair. It doesn't start off with this big in-your-face. It's not like a, a train crash where you've been um, with something like that's happened and it's so sudden. This is this was gradual. You know, you had the iritis and it's been this, you know, all those cliches about burning, lob- uh, cooking lobsters or cooking f- frogs, frogs in, in boil- warm water to boil. It has been that sort of almost gradual thing. There's been some dramas, but... It started off with iritis and a bit of a funny tummy and it's just got steadily worse over the years. So it has been incremental until it's just taken away what we expected. But we also got um, used to it. So you just deal with each increment as it happens. And he's mellowed... I've mellowed. We're more. Con- we try and be more considerate of each other. We're more aware of each other and the things. We make a real point of appreciating what the other one does for the other one. Um, he's been driving me down to the bus stop, so I don't have to catch two buses to go to uni. So I only have to go to one. And some days, he, you know, it's not that easy for him to do, but he's been doing it. Which, you know, a few years ago it was like oh, thunder, lightning. Ah, she could walk to the bus stop. It's fine. Now he'll go. Oh, I'll drive you. It's fine. What sparked that change? I don't know. I think he just mellowed and I mellowed and it was like something that happened and it was just became a thing. As I said, we've been together since we were 22, so we've been together a really, really, really long time. More of our life has been together than not together, obviously. So remembering what our lives were like or could have been like before we were together is so old and vague and in the so far distant that the only thing the only reality we have is the reality that we have together and okay it may not be perfect and it may not have been what we foresaw but it's our reality um and you know my vision of the future is that we're going to really enjoy the times where he's well which is what we've always done and unfortunately, it's been my fault that we haven't spent as much time together at the moment because I've been studying and, and trying to do 100 things at once and I've been a bit time poor. But I'm ho- he's feeling better, you know, and it'll be you know, two steps forward, one step back all the way till he gets a, has a, a week or two weeks or three weeks even of feeling really well and then we'll really try and do stuff and make the most of when he's feeling well. You know, it's like, oh, let's go out for dinner or let's go out for lunch or whatever. If he's feeling well, we do that stuff purely and simply because we've got to make the most of the opportunity because we might not be able to do it for another six weeks. It was like saying about when I was fell pregnant with my daughter, if I didn't do it and keep her, no guarantees that I would ever have that chance again. And although we're not saying we're not going to have the chance to do it together, to do things together, we're making the most of the time when he's well enough that we can do it and then it makes up for the times where he can't because we've gone, yes, let's do this. What are you grateful for and what are you hopeful about? 
I'm I'm planning to die first because I think it'd be much easier. Because <laughs> um, I don't want I don't want to cope with him dying. Um, and that sounds really morbid. Um, I'm really grateful that we've managed to find a place where we can deal, like we can live together and cope with it, all the things, and we're we don't even really fight anymore. Which doesn't mean that we're indifferent to each other, because we're still the little snippy bits and everything else. But we we're still together, together, and that's after all these years. That's pretty damn fine. What does that mean, together, together? We're not strangers living in a house. We're not going through the motions. We appreciate each other. We'll find something that amuses one so they'll share it with the other because it amuses it. Like, oh. And I have a real weakness for really bad puns. I love a really bad pun. And he just groans. <laughs> but I still inflict them, on, <laughs> inflict them on him. And he just laughs at me, not the pun, because he thinks the pun's appalling, but he thinks that's funny, but that I like it so much. So all those sort of things. We appreciate those sort of things about each other. There are, like, he's more organised. He has more of a, a, an aptitude for maths and science, and I'm more of a words person. And that becomes good, because if something happens that I need, I'll say, oh, look, this happened, and he'll go, oh, that's because such and such or such and such, or he'll explain about something, and I'm like, oh, okay because I don't know and then he'll say how do you spell something and I'm like oh yeah but you know even when he when he was working he'd ring me up and say what's a four letter word for such and such because he'd be doing the crossword and he couldn't do it so he'd just automatically ring me to ask me how to do the cross <laughs> and we still have that and we go do the trivia questions in the paper and we'll, we'll play play a game with those and that sort of stuff so we still find things to do together they may not be what everybody does but they're still our things that we do together you mentioned before about the really big dust-up that you had 10 years ago in which you had to kind of reaffirm that you weren't going anywhere and you know I mean obviously the marriage vows involve in sickness and in health and I kind of feel like 10 years ago you almost you know renewed your vows in that moment yeah, I guess we sort of, I never thought of it like that, but I guess we did. We, well, we reaffirmed our commitment to each other despite the illness. You know, it was almost like that was the affair, you know, that, that might break up a marriage is, is somebody has an affair or, you know, their focus is on whatever. And this was, the focus was this stupid illness that just decided to stick its nose into our lives and disrupt everything. And we've decided to... Okay, that happened. We're just going to move on. It still defines a lot of our life, but it's not the be-all and end-all of everything. We're still people. We still happen to like each other. And this is the thing too, is that we still really like each other. As I said, I tell really bad puns and he thinks they're really funny and then he tells me some stupid sport thing that I've never got, have never, ever been interested in. And he tells me things about fish because, you know, he used to love fishing, so he watches all the fishing shows. And I'll go, oh, that's really interesting. Because it is, because he's so fascinated by it. And it's interesting to watch his interest in it. The actual thing isn't that interesting. <laughs> but I, I'm interested in him being so interested in it. So we still share all those sort of stupid things that I think all couples do. It's not that you're feigning interest in what they're interested in, but you're 
fascinated by their fascination with things that don't interest you. Your chemistry and your compatibility in spite of your very different interests just, I don't know, it fascinates me <laughs> given, you know, you're two such different people and yet, you know, you find a way to to meet. get together. So, yeah. I mean, um, get along so, so well. We're best, oh no, this, again, this sounds horrible, I hate this, but we are best friends. Like, there's a million times I've resented him and been angry at him and whinged about him and everything else, that's fine. But underneath all is this this really strong core of, of friendship. And it is, it's the two of us against the world. I'm not saying that the world's against us, but um, we're together with, again, sounds really bad, almost complete because we have different aspects of personality and interests and everything else that are so diametrically opposite. But together they make a really good package because between us we we're, we... We're all, again, horrible. We're whole. You know, it's, and I hate that. It really just sounds so ridiculously romantic and airy-fairy. But each of us has parts that is better than the other one has so that together we make a better, I don't know what the word would be, but we're a package that is stronger and better together than we are. So the, the whole is better than the two separate parts. Them. Does that sort of make sense? In that I'm a better person with him, he's a better person with me, and together we make a better, we, we're better people. So that sort of works. I think apart from each other, we'd be much more selfish, much more self-involved. And because we're together, we're, we're not as self-involved and as selfish as we would possibly be. I don't think it's anything to feel embarrassed about yeah, but admitting. I don't, I don't like sounding all for airy-fairy, you know. I don't like sort of all this um, the souls are meant for each other and all that sort of stuff because I don't believe in any of that. I just think that we make a good unit and we've worked at it and we've smoothed off some of our rough edges so that we, we can work together better um, and we sort of make each other happy on the whole other things make us happy too so it's not like oh you complete me or anything like that but together works it works we're better together than we are apart so we need to be together You've been listening to Love Canberra, now an occasional podcast about love, sex, and relationships. As always, the theme music is by Proletur. Details for the interstitial music are in the show notes. If you'd like to chat to me, or maybe dub in a friend to chat to me, you can drop me a line at lovecamberapodcast at gmail.com. I'm Ivana Ho. Thanks for listening. <laughs>